So if you have a Bible, please grab it and make your way to Hebrews 3 where um, Steve was just reading from and connected to that. This morning we sang one of my favorite songs and I, I love both how we sing Jesus is better and we run it straight into Come Thou Fount. But Come Thou Fount is one of my all-time favorite songs. It was written in 1757 uh, after a guy had been converted for two years. Uh, under a guy named George Whitfield. Some of you may have heard of him, but a guy named Robert Robinson wrote it in 1757. And the last line, we had a key change and went up, goes like this. O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. I, I, I thought about singing this, and I thought, no, I love the congregation too much. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And he goes on, you know, and says, Here's my heart, we take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. But that line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's us, that's who we are. And, and that's the warning that's at, in this text here in Hebrews chapter 3. It, it's warning us of this proclivity of our hearts to turn away from the Lord. To chase sin to our own destruction. Like the book of, of Hebrews that we've been going through, you know, we've been talking about how, how it's all focused on the supremacy of Christ. That no matter what you can come up with, Jesus is better than that thing. Whatever you can come better than that. Right? So we've had better than angels, better than Moses. But all throughout the book of Hebrews, there's just these places where the author pauses and, 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 and peppers the text with warnings. We had one back in chapter 2. Don't drift away. We've got one today. We've got a lot. There's a bunch in chapter 6. But whereas the one in chapter 2 was about not drifting away, the one that we have this morning is about not letting your heart be hardened. And understand, like we understand from the book of Ezekiel, like we have a heart of, of stone, and when we come to Christ, when He quickens our heart, when He regenerates our soul, that at that moment we are given a heart of flesh. Alright? So, but, but mixing metaphors a little bit, the, the author of Hebrews here is, is saying, writing to Jewish Christians, so these are believers, saying, hey, don't let your hearts be hardened. Not that you're going to lose your salvation or so, but don't let them grow callous. Now, if you don't ever show that, I mean, there should be fruit in keeping with repentance. There should be, you know, faith that works. And so there is a possibility that you can think you're converted and there's never any fruit and you actually weren't, but it's not a losing of your salvation. But the warning is here. Is don't let your hearts grow hardened. And then kind of, well, if they do... What do you do about that? Or, or how can you prevent that? And so this morning is just a very practical, like two-pronged how-to sermon. Okay, First, we're going to look at how to harden your hearts. And then we'll look at how to unharden your hearts. All right? And so number one then, just how to harden your heart. And I thought about just having you write in your notes, do nothing. Because if you do nothing, your heart will grow hardened. No pursuit, no repentance, 
No gathering, none of that. Your heart will grow hardened. We only drift one way, right? We do not drift towards Christ. We only drift away from Christ. And so if you do nothing, your heart will grow hardened. But the example that the author gives here is of the Israelites in the weeks following the Exodus. And so from their example, how to harden your heart, you can write this. Live with ingratitude and unbelief. That'll harden your heart. Live with ingratitude and unbelief. Right? And so let's talk ingratitude first. What happens is a, the author is going to quote from Psalm 95 that we read earlier this morning. He's going to quote it now. And so look at verse 7 with me. <coughs> I told you, don't freak out. It's all good. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. I want to stop real quick. That is a key word. You don't need to go past in Scripture. God has to be provoked to anger. Okay, That's not His natural disposition. You never see Him having to be provoked to mercy, provoked to graciousness, provoked to loving. He has to be provoked to anger. Right? His disposition is not anger. His disposition is Exodus 34.6, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's His heart. He doesn't have to be provoked to those things. He has to be provoked to anger. And so here with the Israelites, I mean, He's blessed them so abundantly. He's freed them. And they just don't care. They feel entitled. They weren't thankful. They grumbled. They complained. They rebelled. We'd be better off if you'd left us in Egypt. And so verse 10, Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And particularly there, he's talking about the promised land. Next week, chapter 4, we'll be dealing a lot with rest and our eternal rest in the new heavens and the new earth. So we're just going to let that word kind of sit till next week. But the author is basically just telling us, hey, don't do what they did. Don't do what they did. Don't harden your hearts and turn away. And I mean, think about everything that God had done for them. He had freed them from Egypt. He had sent the plagues, right? And in their corner, He divides the Red Sea. He leads them through the desert with a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. He provides manna from heaven, water from a rock. He just provides for them. And He does it for 40 years. And yet they presumed on His grace. They grumbled against the Lord. They whined. They complained. Just Unbelievable amounts of ingratitude and unbelief. And we think to ourselves, how on earth could they do all that? But we do the same thing. We do the exact same thing. And for example, probably no one in here this morning woke up. Maybe you did. I doubt it. Woke, I mean, you woke up, yes, because you're here, but woke up this morning and said... Praise you, God, for another day. Thank you that I can sit up in bed. 
Thank You that I can put my shoes on. That I can walk. That I can go downstairs. There's milk in the fridge. There's cereal in the pantry. Praise Your name for this. I flip the light switch. It comes on. I get in a car. I drove. I got here safely. Praise Your name for this. Right? I doubt we did that. And so, largely, when things are going good, we don't... We have a marginal thought towards God. But you let one of those things go wrong. You let one thing, and then, then all of our thoughts are about God, and they're all accusations. Where were you? We're just like them. We grumble. We complain. We blame. We question. We are Israel. And just like them, Israel then... And just like following Adam and Eve, we gobble up the serpent's lies. God's not really for you. He doesn't have your best interests at heart. That's why He's keeping something from you. So you need to go around God. You need to take control of your own life. You need to make your own decisions and, and not, not follow His ways. And so we just go our own way. And so we have ungratitude. And now we have unbelief. And that manifests itself in a myriad of sins. And we grow callous and cold and justify our actions. I deserve this. I need this. It's not that bad. And our hearts grow hard toward the things of God. And so the warning then is this. Look at verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And so the point is this. This happened to Israel, who visually witnessed everything that God did in the Exodus, in the parting of the Red Sea, in the fire on the mountain. And if that can happen to them who saw all that, that can happen to us. We can become hardened. And so the warning is, be careful. Don't be hardened. Do not let your hearts harden as in the rebellion. And again, how did they do that? With ingratitude. In verse 19, the end there, unbelief. They were unable to enter because of unbelief, which manifested itself in a myriad of sins. Like we look at the nation of Israel and we just see sin after sin after sin after sin after sin. But the author saying it's not just their sins. That was a symptom. The disease is unbelief. When we have a sin problem, you and I, we have an unbelief problem. We don't believe Jesus is better. In that moment, we say, no, that, that thing's better. And so this is, this is how you can harden your heart. Live with ingratitude. Never thank God for what He's doing in your life. Never see it, never acknowledge it. Just entitlement, presume. And live with unbelief that's manifested in habitual unrepentant sin. That's how you harden your heart. How do you unharden your heart? Number two, how... how, how how to unharden your heart. And, and, and I thought about not even titling it that. I thought about putting how to prevent a hardened heart, right? But then I just got to thinking about 
like that's true. We could, we could write it that way. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, every single person in here, in some way, to some degree, has a hardened heart in some way. All of us. If you don't think you do, that's because your heart's hardened. We all do. Every single one of us. Anybody's heart can be hardened. Mark 8, we see the disciples' hearts are hardened. And so admitting that we have a hardened heart is the first thing we all have to do to start unhardening them. And so this is a safe place. We need to understand like this, when we come, the mere fact that you're here is you saying, I got issues. Right? That's why, we, that's why we gather. Part of the reason we gather. We need help. We need to hear from the Lord. And so this is a safe place. We are all sinners and strugglers in here. We are all in this together. Don't live with a facade. Okay, we're sinners and strugglers. Everybody knows that. No one's going to be surprised by your sin. We are all sinners and strugglers. And all of us have hardened hearts in some way. They just express themselves in different ways and to different degrees. Some of us have, some of us have hardened hearts financially. Some of us have hardened hearts from a toxic culture we work in. Some of us have hardened hearts sexually. Some of us have, our, have had our hearts hardened by the idolatry of politics. Some of us have just gone callous to the Word, to worship. Like, I don't want to be here. I'm only here because I have to be. Man, check your heart. Some of us, if we're like that probably, are hardened narcissists. Pleasure is our God. Having fun is our God. Some of us are hardened and blind Pharisees. Oh, thank you, God, I'm not like that left-wing Democrat. Never recognizing, perhaps, that we're pretty ridiculously mean-spirited. We're not gentle and lowly. That Jesus might call us a brood of vipers. Oh, thank you, God, I'm not like that right-wing Republican. Right? Judging people on labels, not on Christ. Some of us have become hardened and we don't love our neighbor. We only love our tribe. Some of us have become hardened and we've conformed ourselves to the world as it relates to morality and sexuality. And then others of us, not in that way, but as... It relates to how we treat those with whom we disagree with. We've conformed to the world. We fight flesh with flesh. If you don't agree with me, I cancel you. Or we become hardened and we're now unteachable. And so we'll amen things that we already agree with. And dismiss things that we maybe don't. Others of us evidence our hardened heart by the fact that we just stopped caring. I just, I don't care. I don't care about my own spiritual growth. I don't care about my neighbors coming to know Jesus. I don't care about the church. If there's not anything in it for me, then, then I'm kind of out. We become consumers, not providers. And these are all ways that we can become hardened. But they all harken back to this idea of ingratitude and unbelief. Unbelief is a great big 
category for a myriad of sins. And so admitting first that we have some issues, let's look at this kind of this how-to, how to unharden your heart. And letter A comes from verse 12. Look at it with me. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. In other words, the first step to unhardening your heart is to engage in honest, personal introspection. Okay? That's just like looking into your heart, looking, seeing what's there. Engage in honest, personal introspection. That's the first step. Like You've got to get honest. You've got to get before the Lord. You've got to look at your heart. So with the psalmist, regularly pray. Regularly. Not one time. Regularly pray. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That needs to be a regular part of our spiritual disciplines. Engaging in honest, personal introspection. And this is where the importance of Romans 12 and renewing your mind daily becomes so important. Like, your minds are being filled all the time. What are you filling them with? Truth or trash? Like, be honest. Like, minutes per day, where do you spend more of your time? On Facebook? Or with your face in the book? Where? Like, you're going to be conformed to something. You are. All of us are. What are you going to be conformed to? The world or the Word? What are you going to be conformed to? Like, where is the volume set in your life? Do you have the world way up loud and the word way down low? Or do you have the word way up loud and the world way down low? And so we have to be honest. We have to look at our own lives. We've got to run in an internal audit introspection and ask the Lord search me O God know my heart show me because we're blind to it show me see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting and the first step in that way everlasting is leading you to repentance somebody says what's repentance repentance is basically the opposite of sin Sin is turning from God and and, and giving our heart to something else. Repentance is turning from this thing and giving our heart to God. And there's a one-time capital R repentance. It's the moment of conversion, but then the whole rest of your life is lowercase r repentance. Over and 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 over. Repentance is where we agree with God about our sin. We stop excusing it. We stop justifying it. We stop explaining it away. Trying to defend it. It's where we agree with God. You're right. Your word's right. We agree with God with what He says about sin. We own it. We grieve it. We decide to leave it. And we flee to Christ to cleanse it. That's repentance. Okay, It's a turn. It's way more than just a renewed sense of determination. There's to be a change. 
And there's to be fruit born in keeping with repentance. Now, here's where we run into an issue sometimes, though. This does not always mean that you go from like zero to 60 like a Ferrari in, in reform. You may be a Pinto. Younger people have no idea what that is. I think it's a bean, right? Maybe a Yugo. Again, no idea. You may be slow, but there should be progress. Maybe it's a Ferrari in your life. I've seen that. But I've also seen Pintos, right? There should be progress, though. It may be fast, it may be slow, but there should be progress. And so we want to celebrate that progress, but not settle, right? But press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. We want to press on. Celebrate, but don't settle. And so step one in unhardening those areas of your heart that, that we all have is to engage in honest, personal introspection. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And so the first step is very personal. Second one, though, letter B, is interpersonal. And it's this. Letter B. Practice continuous, keyword, continuous, interpersonal exhortation. Practice continuous interpersonal exhortation. This is how we unharden our hearts. Number one, we engage in honest personal introspection. Number two, we get, you know, an outside audit now. Practice continuous interpersonal exhortation. Look at verse 13. But exhort, there's the word, one another, right? Interpersonal. Every day, continual, continuous, as long as it may be called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so if you don't want to be hardened or you want to be unhardened, you have to practice continuous interpersonal exhortation. Okay, interpersonal, that means it's not private. And it kind of works like a funnel. There's a corporate level to that, but then it funnels down to smaller groups, smaller groups, down to you know, individuals that you're engaging in. And there's a deeper, deeper level of exhortation and knowing as that funnel goes down. So let's just kind of trace that funnel for a minute. All right, it starts corporate. Continuous interpersonal exhortation starts here in the weekly corporate gathering. I mean, straight up. If you are not in regular attendance at the church where you are a member or that you're looking into becoming a member, you will become hardened. Period. Dot. If you are not in regular attendance, you will become hardened. Period. Dot. Now, I get there's some, there's some specific circumstances of homebound or caring for someone or what. I get that. We're talking on the whole here. Like you show me someone who is not regular in their attendance at church, and I will show you someone who's not walking closely with Jesus. Period. That's just the way it works. Now, just because you attend church does not mean you're necessarily close with Jesus, but if you don't attend church, it guarantees you're not. Right, for one, it's just straight up sin. For two, there's nothing, there's no exhortation, there's no interpersonal exhortation happening. It's the whole, you know, coal illustration. you got all the red coals and you pull one out and it's black. Real fast, grows black, right? But the good thing is you grab it, throw it back in, it's red again. 
And so, friends, this is why we make a big deal of attendance here. It's not about cheeks in the seat. That took y'all a little while to get that. <laughs> but it's your own benefit and growth and being hearing the word, your health, your perseverance. God created the church for this. And so there's just like bare minimum Christian living is like go to church, right? Like if you're not, not going to hit the ball off the tee like in T-ball, you're never going to hit it in coach pitch and in kid pitch, like bare minimum, play T-ball. And so it's kind of like a choice then between a slow drift or a slow drip. That's your choice. Slow drift, not in church, slowly drift away. Imperceptible. You don't see it until after a long time. Oh, snap, I'm far away from the dock. Slow drip is where that water just drips. Week by week by week. Nothing fancy, nothing flashy, right? We don't turn the, like we purposefully have outside light coming in. We don't have it dark and lasers and manipulate you into a frenzy. But that drip, week by week by week, you see that? It will bore a hole in a rock. And it will do the same thing in your soul. In that hardened heart. Week by week by week. So you stay in. That slow drip. Imperceptible. Like kids growing. And then you wake up and you're like, oh my gosh, she's a woman. But then this drills down even further as we bear burdens in community groups. And then continually interpersonally, you know, exhorting one another. And then it drills down even further just into relationships in the church where outside of this gathering, people are just naturally, intentionally, and all the time inviting people, let's get lunch, let's get coffee, let's get breakfast. What's going on in your life? How can I pray for you? Looking at the Word. Just That's a culture of discipleship that produces just a vulnerability and a I don't have it all together. Facades go away. You get real growth without continuous interpersonal exhortation. Your heart will remain hard. You can't go it alone. God never intended for you to. Part of the reason He gave us the church. We need one another. Calvin puts it like this. As by nature we are prone to fall into evil, we have need of various helps to help us in the fear of God. Unless our faith is repeatedly encouraged, it lies dormant. Unless it is warmed, it grows cold. Unless it is aroused, it gets numb. The writer of Hebrews therefore wishes them to stimulate one another by mutual encouragement so that Satan will not steal into their hearts and by his falsehoods, lead them away from God. We need one another. And one of the reasons we are so in need of others to speak into our lives is because of the end of verse 13 there. The deceitfulness of sin. Now you can't see because we're deceived. We have deceptive hearts, Jeremiah tells us. Sin is deceptive. And deceit, I mean, it's all over the world, right? Turn on social media. Hello, deceit, right? And not just people, you know, posting their life and then you look at their life and you're like, wow, their life is so good. I wish I had their life, but they're not showing you behind the scenes. They're just, it's just the, all that's fake. Like teenagers especially, if you look at us, it's not real. People don't live like that. 
I'm not showing you behind the, the scenes. But I'm not just talking about people, you know, only sharing the highlights of their life. And beyond that, deceitfulness. Re- Relevant Magazine published an article this week, I saw it, uh, that talked about how 19 of the top 20 most popular Christian pages were run by Eastern European troll farms. Uh, here's the excerpt, I'll read it to you. In 2019, 19 of Facebook's top 20 pages for American Christians were run by Eastern European troll farms overseas. Internal documents leaked to MIT Technology Review reveal. The data shows the vast spread of Facebook misinformation is largely powered by coordinated efforts among foreign professionals working together to spread provocative content in the U.S. These groups, based largely in Kosovo and Macedonia, have been particularly successful when it comes to targeting American Christians. Though they split their efforts among multiple pages, they were mostly operated by the same groups. Collectively, their Christian Facebook pages reach about 75 million users a month. An audience 20 times the size of the next largest Christian Facebook page. For the most part, the people who saw and engaged with these posts didn't actually like the pages they're coming from. Facebook's engagement-hungry algorithm simply shipped them what it thought they want to see. Internal studies revealed that divisive posts are more likely to reach a big audience, and troll farms use that to their advantage, spreading provocative misinformation that generates a bigger response to spread their online reach. Christian pastors have congregations in their pews. At best, one morning a week, Facebook is in their pocket all day long, shaping their theology for its own ends. You've got to have outside people speaking into you if that's what's being shipped to you down, like down your throat. And so I say again, get off Facebook and get your face in the book. And get people around you who can help you not only see the deceit of that, but more importantly, the deceitfulness of our sin. Because by nature, sin is deceit and lies. That's what it is by nature. The father of lies. And so sin says, hey, do this, it'll be better, you'll be happy. But it's deceit. It's not true. Sin advertises pleasure, but delivers pain. Like the old quote says, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. It's deceit. And so you have to fight personally, and interpersonally, with brothers, with sisters, with the church. We have to take up our cross and die daily. A book I've been reading is a devotional book, Milton Vincent, I put it in your um, notes. A Gospel Primer for Christians. Section 24 and 25, he's talking about how we have died with Christ. It's not just that Christ has died for us, but Galatians 2 tells us we have died with Christ, and we are to live that out daily. We're to die daily. And so he writes this, When my flesh yearns for, something pro, for some prohibited thing, I must die. When called to do something I don't want to do, I must die. When I wish to be selfish and serve no one, I must die. When shattered by hardships that I despise, I must die. When wanting to cling to wrongs done against me, I must die. 
When enticed by the allurements of the world, I must die. When, when wishing to keep besetting sin secret, I must die. When wants that are borderline needs are left unmet, I must die. When dreams that are even good seem shoved aside, I must die. As a runner, Steve Prefontaine, uh, still, almost 50 years after his death, was like powerful, you know, like, I don't know, folk hero of anybody who runs, you know, track and field, cross country. And he, you know, had a myriad of quotes, not a Christian, but just a myriad of quotes that are, are, are famous. And one of the most famous as it relates to racing and the pain you must endure for success is this. The best pace is a suicide pace. And today is a good day to die. Friends, we need people around us continually exhorting us to this daily death. Hey, today's a good day to die to that. Today's a good day to die to that. Today's a good day to die to that. It's daily death to sin and the hardening of our hearts, right? And so to unharden our, our hearts, we must engage in honest, personal introspection, but then we got to get people from the outside as well. And so practice continuous interpersonal exhortation. And then letter C, remember always the gospel. Remember always the gospel. We have to do all these. Honest, personal introspection. Continuous interpersonal exhortation and then remembering always the gospel. Look back at verse 12. Let's bring this all together. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you, so this is the personal part, an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we, again, corporate, have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence, hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Original confidence. What is our original confidence? It's the gospel, it's Christ. It's trusting him. That original time, we hold that original confidence. And so the call here is to, to hang on to it, to remember it. Because it's not just like our means of entry into the kingdom of heaven. It's our means of daily life. Constantly remembering. Because like whatever you've done, whatever you've engaged in, no matter how hard your heart may be in certain ways, the grace of Christ is infinitely greater. You cannot out the cross. And so shooting you straight, like we are going to blow it at times. Right? We are. We want to try not to. We want to fight against that. And as we, by God's grace, as we grow, that should become less and less and less. Though He will open our eyes to more and more and more what we call smaller sins. And we'll realize, man, I'm way worse than I thought I was five years ago. But until we die or Jesus comes again, there will be times where we fail. Where, like Peter, we betray Jesus, we deny Jesus, we sin against Him. And when that happens, if you are in Christ, you don't run from God. And you don't have to go like do enough penance, do enough time, do enough stuff to like pay it off. You remember the Gospel, you remember the good news that Jesus paid it all and that 
Our union with Christ, our communion can be based on how we live, but our union with Christ has nothing to do with what we've done. Our union with Christ is based solely on what Jesus did. His life in our place. His death in our place. His resurrection that guarantees our forgiveness. And so you remember that when you, when you fall. You remember that, and then like the prodigal son, you run home. You run home. And so friends, as we fight, and we must fight, we must always remember the gospel. The amazing grace. Hang on to that. This is how you unharden your heart. You engage in honest personal introspection. You practice continuous interpersonal exhortation and you remember always the good news of the gospel that in Jesus Christ we are forgiven. And so truly, oh to grace how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And then we come, here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let's pray. Lord, that is our plea. We recognize our proclivity to wander. Our proclivity to turn from You. To harden our hearts. To fill our lives with God replacements. And to give our affections and the best of us to those things. And maybe a little hat tip to You. Forgive us. Afresh, we say, here's our heart, Lord. I may have been far from You. I may have struggled. I may have strayed, Lord, today. I repent. I turn back to You. I renounce my love for those things. I turn to You. Here's my heart. Take. Seal it. Because I am prone to wander. Father, help us to know that we are prone to wander. Help us to not be full of ourselves lest we fall. And then, Father, help us just as we're blind to sin so often sometimes when we now see our sin, then we become blind to the cross. And help us not to be blind. Help us to remember the Gospel. And because of what You have done, Jesus, in our place. By Your actions, not our own, we are made right with the Father. And so we praise You and we bless You, Lord. But we're in these moments right now. As we prepare to take the Word's Supper, Lord, would You indeed search our hearts, Lord. Show us. Show us what may be in there that we've become callous to. It doesn't even bother us anymore. And change us. To not be conformed to the world. But to your Son. Our Lord. Our Savior. In Jesus name. Amen.